Hey, welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She called us to live to a higher standard and to not be satisfied with just a little religion as a shallow substitute for giving God our best. The series will continue in the coming weeks as we hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today we continue our extended series on the Amy Carmichael story. We'll be thinking about learning through the ordinary circumstances of life. We'll think about inmost desires and what stood out about Amy Carmichael among those who knew her well. Joining us today will be Valerie Elliott Shepherd, Elizabeth's daughter, as she talks about her stepfather, Addison Leach, a little bit about Walt, her husband, and about the sovereignty of God. All that coming up later today. Also, one of Elizabeth's friends, Kathy Gilbert, will have thoughts on suffering, forgetfulness, and Elizabeth's passing. Right now, though, Gateway to Joy 288. It's about the inmost desires. And here's a question. How much do we love God? Here's Loving God Part 3. Part 15 in the extended series on the Amy Carmichael story. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot talking with you again about loving God. It is the desire of my heart to learn to love God. And the way in which I can do that is in my ordinary everyday life. There isn't any other place where I'm ever going to learn to do it. I want you to know that I get many of your letters, not all of them, and I'm sure that you can understand that this is a necessity. I wish it were possible for me to read every single one of them and answer every single one of them. But many of them that I don't give a personal answer to, I do read, and I do pray over all the letters that come. Not long ago, I had a letter from a young woman who was longing for marriage. Well, I don't suppose more than two or three days go by when I don't get letters like that. And I have a good many friends, beautiful, young, single women, some of them middle-aged single women, who are longing for marriage and still praying that God may someday give them that gift. One of the people for whom I prayed for a long time about this particular matter is my producer, whose name was Jan Anderson, and I'm so thankful for God's answers to my prayers and those of many others for dear Jan and her husband, Lauren Wismer. But this young woman has had a number of heartbreaks, the one who wrote me the letter that I referred to, but she has been praying a prayer that she found in Amy Carmichael's book, Rose from Briar. It's a prayer that's not as familiar to me as some of Amy's other poems because it does not appear in her poetry book called Toward Jerusalem. But I wanted to read these words because they do express a heart that longs to love God. Lord, more and more I pray thee, or by wind or fire, make pure my inmost heart's desire and purge the clinging chaff from off the floor. I wish thy way, but when in me myself would rise and long for something otherwise, then, Holy One, take sword and spear and slay. 
Oh, stay nearby, most patient love, till by thy grace in this poor silver thy bright face show forth in clearness and serenity. What will it be when, like the lily or the rose, that in my flowery garden blows, I shall be flawless, perfect, Lord, to thee? How much do we love God? Well, by comparison with the way he loves us, not very much, do we? Back to the story of Amy Carmichael, the life that has had such an influence in my own life in teaching me what it means to love God, what it means to obey him, and what it means to walk the way of the cross. Amy Carmichael had a very close co-worker, one of the young women who had traveled with her in the itinerant evangelistic band. Her name was Ponemal, and Ponemal was one of her most trusted workers in the Donovor Fellowship, a leader in the work, and she got cancer. The cancer progressed as cancer is wont to do, and they called for an elder from the city to come and anoint and pray with her. And the family gathered around, and they laid a palm branch across the bed as a sign of victory. And before the Lord, they accepted whatever answer God might give. Amy referred to those who wrote to her and said, you must claim God's healing. She said, we don't know enough where things of this world are concerned to claim something from God. God knows what we need. God knows what will best glorify him, and we ask him for that. And so in advance, we accepted whatever answer God might give. And after this ceremony of prayer and anointing and the victory palm branch laid across the bed, Ponemal grew worse. She lay for days without speaking, her dull eyes half open. Her pain was violent. And finally, on August 26, 1915, Ponemal died. Amy Carmichael wrote this. Once, when she seemed to be in unimaginable misery, she told me how she had longed to be allowed to stay. She thought she could help a little if the pain does not pass this limit. Amy said, it seemed to me the most unselfish word I had ever heard from human lips. She touched the limit at last, the limit divinely set to pain, and her warfare was accomplished on August 26th. She would never be replaced. She had been among the best. But, Amy wrote, we shall have our best again, purified, perfected, assured from change forever. That was ground for hope. Then her trusted worker, Arali, only a few months after this, was discovered to have a very serious disease called Bright's disease. Her name meant star. She was to Amy the treasure of all treasures, the Elisha on whom her mantle was to fall. And looking up to the Lord, she said, Must thou take them all? Arali rallied and lived for 24 more years. And then the family had to go through the pain of world 
War I. There were 12 nurseries in Donovor by that time. Because of the war, although it didn't seem to affect them very immediately, there were many fears of new decisions and of the future. Amy began to pray about the future and new decisions that she believed that God might be asking her to take. And it was as if she saw the Lord standing on the waves in the storm with his hand outstretched, as it was to Peter. And Amy said, Lord, bid me come to thee from any boat on any water. Only teach me how to walk on the sea. Are some of you perhaps facing a fearful future, new decisions, things that you're anxious about, worried about, and it's as if the Lord may be asking you to walk on water? Can you pray that prayer? Bid me come to thee from any boat on any water. Only teach me how to walk on the sea. There were seven young women, including Prina, the first temple child, about whom I told you last week, and others whose names are almost unpronounceable, so I won't give you their names. But there was this same spirit that was found in Ponemal in them. Today, some would say that Amy Carmichael was their role model. I think that's a cold and a sterile term, which implies the mere assumption of a part or duty. But their ama, Amy, was far more to them than that. She was mother. They were mothered in every way a child can be conscious of being mothered, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Amy was a loving and a powerful presence in their everyday lives. An older woman who did what the Apostle Paul told his protege Titus to instruct all older women to do. Teach younger women by example what godliness looks like. Amy began then to pray about starting a group called the Sisters of the Common Life. Women with no fences. She wanted them to live a life with no fences. The most dedicated women of all who were willing to do whatever needed to be done. The humblest work, the work which might be the most distasteful to them naturally. She says, we shaped ourselves into a group. In India, as everywhere else, a distinction was usually made between the sacred and the secular. But the sisters of the common life wanted to erase that line between the sacred and the secular, remembering him who took a towel. They quoted the word from 1 Peter 5, 5, put on the apron of humility, and Jesus' words from Matthew eleven twenty eight, take my yoke upon you. These were their watchwords. Their vow, whatsoever thou sayest unto me, by thy grace I will do it. Their constraint, Thy love, O Christ my Lord. Their confidence, Thou art able to keep that which I have committed unto Thee. Their joy, to do Thy will, O God. Their discipline, that which I would not choose, but which Thy love appoints. Their prayer, conform my will to Thine. Their motto, love to live, live to love. Loving God. It should be the rule of our lives. That was Loving God Part 3, part of our extended look into the Amy Carmichael story. Well, let's hear from Valerie Elliott Shepard, Elizabeth's daughter. 
as she talks about Elizabeth's second husband, Addison Leach, about sovereignty, and about Valerie's husband, Walt. I fell in love with my husband my junior year of college because he was living in my mother's house. I didn't get to know him until really the following fall, but my mother kept writing about this Walt Shepard, and I was curious. I was very curious and uh, came home for Christmas. He was there for just one week before he went home for Christmas. He was a boarder because my mother had asked at the seminary for uh, a guy to come and help her with my stepfather who was dying of cancer. And my stepfather did die at the beginning of my sophomore year when I was 18. And it was a very sad time. It was also a huge lesson in the sovereignty of God because I had been pretty determined that he was going to be healed by the Lord. And in June, he died in September. In June, my mother came to me and he said, she said, Val, I think you might have to accept the fact that he probably will die. And I said, but mama, all the people that are praying for him and you know God can heal and he, he, he just needs to accept that, that God will heal him. And she just kept reminding me that he didn't have the will to live. He really wanted to just go on to heaven. And so when I said goodbye to him before I started my sophomore year, and this really was my first big lesson in the sovereignty of God in my own heart, I said to daddy, he's lying on a bed, of course, and he was not doing well. I said, daddy, when I see you again, it'll be Thanksgiving and you'll be all well. And I said it with a smile and my normal optimistic spirit. And he looked at me very seriously, he said, no, Val, I'm dying. And I gave him a kiss goodbye and got, and got to Wheaton the next uh, day and a half. I drove, drove with my cousin to Wheaton. And Sunday night, I moved into my dorm. Monday, my mother called me during this day and said he was in a coma and that he would probably die soon. So that was Friday that I said goodbye to him. Saturday, drove to Wheaton. Monday, he died. Well, do you know the peace of the Lord that passes all understanding? It just fell over me. Um, no other way to put it. I just knew right away when my mother said that he had died, that God was sovereign. God knew what he was doing and that I couldn't demand something that I wanted. And I, I just understood suddenly that I could accept God's way instead of my own way and what my mother must have gone through in uh, hearing that my dad had died. She had said, you know, he's yours, Lord. And she had said, she had hoped that they would live a long life in Ecuador being missionaries, but the Lord took him. And the same way my mother and I both uh, grieved, and I know she grieved in a much harder way because, of course, it was her second husband and she loved him so much. But that was really understanding that God knows what he's doing and God will give you peace if you trust him and accept him. This is the true grace of God in which you stand, says 1 Peter 5. Valerie Elliott Shepherd, Elizabeth and Jim's daughter. Well, our second Gateway to Joy program today is number 289. We're over halfway through our extended look into the life of Amy Carmichael. If you were to go back and talk to her friends, what was it that stood out about her? Of all the things she did, all the characteristics, what was it that 
people over and over again pointed to when they thought about Amy Carmichael. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you again about loving God. I've tried many times to express what Amy Carmichael's influence in my life has been, and there really isn't any way that I can express it. But that's the life from whom I'm taking my lessons about loving God. When people were asked, people who knew Amy very well, what was the outstanding characteristic? What was the thing that impressed you most about Amy Carmichael? The answer was always the same. It was her love. Love is sacrificial. And Amy had laid down her life to serve the Lord in India, and serving the Lord meant for her serving little children. Amy said, I suppose I have cut tens of thousands of tiny fingernails and toenails. Has it ever crossed your mind that things like that can be service to God? They certainly are. Remember that Jesus said, inasmuch as you have done it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done it for me. And that's the way Amy saw things. There was no dichotomy between the secular and the sacred. She saw all of her life as an offering to Jesus Christ. It was her love for the Indians that made her fight with all her strength to save children from an immoral life connected with the temples in South India. I've told you how Amy had begun a work for the little girls who were committed to temple prostitution. While she was learning about this evil, she learned about another one, that little boys also were used in connection with Hindu worship for homosexual purposes. I suppose that Amy, being a Victorian, didn't have the slightest idea what homosexuality meant, but she learned that it was a great evil, and she began to pray that the Lord would enable her in some way to save the boys as well which meant that she also had to pray that the Lord would send men to work with her in Donavur. One of the features of village life in South India was the Car Festival. That's capital C-A-R. The car, or the juggernaut, was a towering wooden structure on wheels which bore the Hindu idol. Its dark, carved surfaces represented various aspects of worship. They were covered with streamers, tinsel, and garlands of flowers. One day in 1909, Amy was standing in the blinding heat and smothering dust on the street of a village when, with shoutings and flingings of arms in the air, the brown flood swept past. Thousands of men, stripped to the waist in honor of the god, strained and sweated at the ropes, pulling the car. The flood grew denser, the shouts were frenzied, the car moved around the corner, rocked for a dizzy moment, and stopped. There were policemen there, lest any devotee should attempt to fling himself under the huge wheels. But it wasn't the car or the crowd or the heat or any other aspect of the festival that riveted the attention of the missionary Amy Carmichael. It was the little boys, acolytes attending the god, one of them on the upper tier of the car, wreathed in pink flowers. Amy couldn't bear it. 
She believed that the gods of India, as depicted by their aggressive and seductive images, were satanic, and they who made them were like unto them. The things she had learned about the character of Hindu worship through the years of language study and the mind of the Hindu were for her quite literally both unutterable and nearly unthinkable. It was slime, filth, sin, she wrote. But books that whitewash Hinduism are turned out by the dozen now, and it's terribly unfashionable to feel as we do, she said. She began an investigation. She collected all the facts that she possibly could. She met with indifference and very often with denial. It's not true. It doesn't happen. One day she got a telegram from the government. They wanted the facts. And so she sent them the facts. Once an Indian friend, acquainted with the ways of the underworld, took her to a house with barred windows and verandas and a heavy bolted door. It wasn't any different from the other houses in the street, but this friend knew what went on inside. They knocked, an old hag opened the door a crack, and after the usual polite preliminaries, the Indian asked if the children were well. What children? There are no children here. The boys, O oh elder sister, the boys who learn here. No boys learn here, and the door all but shut. Oh, say not so, sister. Do they not learn songs? No boys learn songs here, and the door shut. Later, miraculously, Amy succeeded in walking straight into a house where the boys were taught. A white woman in a sun helmet and European dress would never have managed it. Amy was dressed as an Indian in her sari, barefoot. The boys swarmed around the lady in the sari, taking her hands, begging her to sit down, friendly and lovable and keen to make the most of this welcome interruption to an apparently strictly enforced routine. That was how she described their attitude toward her. After an illuminating 20 minutes, the interruption was discovered. An angry man rushed in like a whirlwind, sent the boys off to their lessons, and too confounded for speech, returned Amy's calm salam as she departed. She bought a ticket for the drama and found that the boy who had invited her into the house was the star of the show, a little queen robed in a shimmer of pink and gold jewels, playing a musical instrument which showed to perfection the delicate, sensitive hands. As he played, he turned his little head slowly from side to side and bowed in the approved fashion of beautiful queens. The crowd, boisterous before, was suddenly hushed, transfixed by the beauty of the child. But Amy was unable to get the picture out of her mind. She prayed as she had never prayed before, that God would enable her to save some of these boys. She prayed that God would send men workers. Where were the men? She traveled in prayer. Terrible temptations began to beset her. Terrible discouragements threatened to paralyze her. She thought of that word in Scripture, the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. 
she asked herself, am I ready for this? What sort of fire is going to burn before we're able to accomplish this work for God? What of our reputation? Was she willing to consider her own reputation nothing but ashes? How do you and I feel about our reputation? I told you last week about a certain criticism that had been leveled against me, which certainly would besmirch my reputation. There was really no way that I could defend myself against it, but I wanted to in every way because I have an eye sometimes for my reputation. Jesus said, the man who has an eye to his own reputation is not to be trusted. The man who will commit his reputation to God is a true man. One woman had given her child to a friend of Donafur only to reclaim him. Amy's hopes had been raised. Perhaps the Lord was going to give her a boy. And then on another occasion, one of the Donavor workers went to a house where she was told a little boy might be given to them. He was refused, but later he went back to check on the child again, and the mother said, take him, he's yours, and pointed to a bundle of rags in the corner. The child had smallpox and was blind by that time. Later he could find no trace of him. But on January 14, 1918, an amazing thing happened. A bandy, an ox cart, jiggled up to the bungalow in Donavor. A tired woman handed out a weary child who smiled and cuddled down on Amy's shoulder. Someone took it to the nursery and in five minutes rushed back breathless. It's a boy. They named him Arrol. He was the first fruits of seven years of travail, the first baby boy brought to her from one of the temples. But this was going to require a new mold of men. Where were the men who would work sacrificially and love these children as Donavor workers had to do? Let me read again from the little book, If, that book that pierces to the heart of each one of us. If the ultimate, the hardest, cannot be asked of me, if my fellows hesitate to ask it and turn to someone else, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I covet any place on earth but the dust at the foot of the cross, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Loving God is not a sentimental thing. It means laying down our lives. It means the willingness to put our reputations on the line. It means being in the place where the hardest thing can be asked of us without hesitation. May God give us Calvary love. That was Loving God Part 4, part of our extended look into the Amy Carmichael story. Well, before we go, let's take about three minutes to hear from Elizabeth's friend, Kathy Gilbert. And in an April letter in 1999, she said, My friend, dear friend Kathy, pray with me that I will be faithful, a faithful imitator of God as a dearly loved child and live a life of love, again in cap 
capital letters, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There are times in my life, and yours as well, I'm sure, when I cannot find help except from God himself, but can always give help to someone somehow. And that was her life. She continues, death is at work in me in many ways, many particularly challenging ways of late. But of course, it is a quiet, hidden, painful, lifelong, how much longer do I have, in parentheses, process, which a servant must accept and expect. I don't mean to dramatize my trials. What I do know of suffering, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And then in a June letter in 2002, she said, my dear Kathy, please pray often about my forgetfulness. Alas, it is getting worse, but my trust is in the Lord, one day at a time. And then in a June 2002 phone call, I'm getting so forgetful and helpless and out of it much of the time, always forgetting things, very upsetting for Lars. At times I feel like I'm falling apart. This is a major thing, this helplessness and forgetfulness. And then May of 2007, because that that was the last time that we had a normal conversation, was in that June 2002. And in May of 2007, Lars, Elizabeth, and I were guests of Blue Letter Bible for a week, and Elizabeth was very quiet and mostly did what she was told. She loved to look at pictures from her books, which I brought, especially loved looking at baby Valerie. And she loved candy, which was so unusual because Elizabeth was so healthy and careful about what she ate, and yet she was so weak. And I have to say that the grace buffer was gone. And Elizabeth stopped speaking publicly in 2004. She was 88 years old when she went home to be with Jesus and heard those words there in her home in Magnolia, Massachusetts, June 15, 2015, when she heard the words, Welcome, good and faithful servant. Kathy Gilbert, wife, mother, grandmother, and friend of Elizabeth. Well, looks as though our time together is coming to an end quickly, but let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, along with you to get some exercise wherever we found you today. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources at elizabethelliot.org. Lectures, talks, devotionals, videos, Gateway to Joy programs, and more. ElizabethElliot.org. And the next time you listen, maybe take a little bit of time and leave a review for us wherever you found this podcast. Until next time, may God remind you daily that you're loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms 